You are listening to the sermons of Concordia Lutheran Church, located at 3144 South Home Avenue in Berwyn, Illinois. We invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9 o'clock a.m. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This past June, I went to a preaching conference. It was a workshop where we talked about uh, the craft and skill of preaching. And one of the things that they pointed out that changed the way I think about this is how much our conceptual frameworks about reality influence how we, inf we understand the, word, the world, that the way we categorize life actually defines what we notice. Let me give you an example. Um, the tale of the prodigal son. In this story, the, the prodigal son leaves his father, goes off to a far land, spends all his wealth, and then comes running back to beg forgiveness and become a part of the family again. And you ask different people, what's the problem of this story? And you'll get different answers. Typically, when you ask Americans what the problem is, he wasted the money, right? Or else it might be he had lived immoral, an immoral life. Now, if you ask people in other parts of the world, they will say something like, the example was from Russia, he left his family. That was the problem. Because you don't leave your family because you, that's where your support is. It's a little different way of looking at it, right? Totally different view of the problem there. Another example was uh, he asked a different group of people what was the problem, and they said, the strangers in the strange land didn't give him any food. That was the sin that was the most important one. You see how different cultures and different ideas mean that you see different things and you understand the world in different ways? The way we categorize our ideas and life and the world around us is how we understand reality. And then as we sense and feel it, everything that we understand from the world as it comes at us gets filtered through that understanding, through our concepts. St. Paul is talking about that in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about the two different cultures he was dealing with and what they expect from the world. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks see wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so for, for the Greeks, in their understanding that wisdom is the big goal, they would see, look to Christ, look to God, and say, where is the wisdom in that? For Jews, they would look for signs, for miracles. And in the Christian church, they would say, where is that? All we see is suffering. We don't come from the same angle, of course. Uh, Americans are not Greeks from the first century, or certainly not Jews from the first century either. 
But we all have ways that we view the world, the things that influence everything. And one of the common themes of American sensibilities is something called moral therapeutic deism. You may have heard this. Uh, I probably have talked about this at least once or twice. Moral therapeutic deism is basically the religion of America. It's something that's come out of Christianity and has become like a watered-down version of it. And I'd like to talk about it today, not as it's going on out there, but because I believe that the Christian church, this is our conceptual framework for how we receive information about Jesus. And that the fundamental level is we need to break this up to really understand what the Bible is trying to say to us. Today I'm going to do an overview of the five points of moral therapeutic deism, but I have to say each one could use its own sermon or at least even a sermon series. But today we're going to take just a short look at the whole thing. So the five points of moral therapeutic deism are, first, God created the world and watches over it. Second, God wants us all to be nice. Third, God wants us to be happy and feel good about ourselves. Fourth, God is not very involved in my life unless I have a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. These are the five points, and I do believe that each of us, this is the beginning point of our understanding of Christianity. So let's start with the first one. God created the world and watches over it. This is actually different from the way that, that Christians typically talk about God throughout history. The idea behind this is God is actually some far-off person, like he's floating up on a cloud somewhere and distant from his creation. He made it and it's going and he's just sort of looking down from on high and, well, distant. But Christians have always talked about God in a different way. We talk about God being the foundation of all of creation, that he is being, which means if he is not somewhere, if he is distant from something, that thing stops existing. Have you ever talked about God being up in heaven? That's kind of the way we think about things. If you ever thought about God as someone who isn't involved in certain aspects of life, that's part of it. It's common among Christians to talk about God allowing bad things to happen. But if you are the, the foundation of all being, if you are everywhere at all times, you are in every bad thing. You are a part of every cancer cell, every terrorist attack, God is there. God was there when those men flew those planes into the towers on 9-11. This is a good thing for us. If God withdraws himself from things, if God is distant and far off and not involved in everything, there are things God is not in charge of. There are things that can be outside of his control which means your salvation could be too. But if God is in everything, 
If God is around for every disaster, every pain, he is also there with you in that. He is also sending his son Jesus Christ to be with you through that, that he can save you from it, that there is no power in heaven or on earth or anywhere else that can separate you from the love of Christ because God is there in control in everything. He's not far off. He's not floating up in a cloud. He is right here in your whole life. Number two, God wants us to be nice. We can see this in the way many families uh, raise their kids. Parents who want to be nice instead of being parents. Uh, my, my parents are both teachers, and towards the end of their, their career, right before they retired, they were talking about how frequent it was that parents just want to be their kids' friends. And there's a problem with that, right? If you are just being nice, there's no confrontation. There's no discipline. And you end up raising children that are awful. Nobody wants to be around them. Parents don't, don't like to be uh, involved when they're playing or upset or angry. Their friends don't want to be around. And teachers certainly don't want to have to be the only ones who are disciplining them in their lives. And it's setting up those kids for failure. That's what happens when you're just nice. And the same thing happens when we're just nice in the church. When there is no confrontation, when there is no calling out sin, we're setting each other up for failure. Why? Repentance precedes forgiveness. No repentance, no forgiveness. God has called us to live a life where each of us points out our sin to ourselves and helps each other live faithfully. It's not just a, a place where we gather together and smile and shake hands and try to be nice and then we talk about the little sins and hope we go home. We hold each other accountable to 100% faithfulness to living for Christ because he lived for us, because he walked that faithful life for you to die on the cross, rise from the dead, and give you life. Our job is to hold each other to that, which means sometimes we have to say things that seem mean. Sometimes we have to tell each other that your sin is leading you down the path Toward Satan and hell. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? But it does call to repentance with the hope that it leads to forgiveness. Because that's what Jesus does. He forgives those who repent, who turn to him and say, save me. And we all need that. Number three, God wants us to be happy and feel good about ourselves. This, of course, is not the way the Christian church talks about it. God doesn't call us to be happy. God calls us to be faithful. I think we have 
taken the Christian religion and turned it into sort of like middle-class America respectable. The American dream is the house and the family and the, the happy life, and somehow Christians have said, this is what God wants. One of our stories today actually goes against that. The story of Elisha, you know, when Elijah comes down and he uh, chooses Elisha to be the next prophet, Elisha doesn't go, okay, wait a second, you know, I'm going to leave all my tools so I can go back and come back to my business, and um, when the, the harvest is over, sure, I'll follow you, and then you can teach me what you like. Maybe a two-week mission trip is about right, and then I'll be back because i got to make money. He sacrifices the oxen one of the most important investments in his life, and he burns the tools that harness them to make them work animals. Isn't that amazing? Everything given up, turned away. We see this in the New Testament too. P Jesus calls his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they leave behind their nets. They leave behind their family. They go into a new life following Christ, called to faithfulness, turning away from their business, their livelihood, their family, everything. Or when Jesus is going along, traveling on his way to Jerusalem, someone walks up to him and says, I will follow you. First, let me go back and bury my family. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Someone else comes up to him and says, Jesus, let me follow you. And he says, foxes have, have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. These are intense things, right? God calls us to be faithful because that's what Christ did. He didn't say to all of creation, okay, guys, I am going to go out and preach and teach I've got two weeks of vacation from my carpentry business. Uh, things die down in the end of June. That'll be fine. And then uh, I got to make sure I'm back by August for back to school sales. He gave it all up. Not just his, his livelihood, not just leaving behind his family, but his whole life sacrificed for you. Pain, torture, death, awful things left all his livelihood behind, took up pain and death, died, rose to give you life. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. Number four, God is only involved in our lives when we have a problem. It's, a, it's an old trope. In movies, TV, the man is out drowning somewhere and he just he, he, he can't see anything around him and he prays to God, God, I will dedicate my life to you if you save me. And then a boat shows up out of the middle of nowhere and pulls him out. God was there to save him in his trouble, but as soon as he gets back, life goes back to normal. We do that too. Lots of people will come to the church or to their pastor when they're in the middle of a struggle. Things aren't going well. Their, their life is not good. They're sick. They've got family problems. Uh, they're just worried. And that's when you come and say, I need help. I need something. 
That's when our prayers become most fervent. But is, is that the only time God is with us? When was the last time you came to your pastor and said, Pastor, everything is going great. I need some spiritual guidance to make me more faithful. Everything is awesome right now. I want to, to take my life and, and offer thanks for that. What can I do? God isn't just there in our problems. He wants to be uh, there with us in our successes. In every aspect of our life, he is involved in everything. And he wants to be there to give his love and his grace to you to support you in all of that. Because it's just as dangerous to be in good times, tempted by those, as it is to be in bad times. God's grace and his love is there to support you in both. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is not true. Actually, good people go to hell when they die. Bad people go to heaven when they die. Bad people go to heaven when they die because they're the ones who know that they need help. You probably remember the story of the paralyzed man uh, Jesus is teaching inside a house, and it's filled to capacity. And uh, Jesus, uh, the man's friends, are carrying his bed. And they get up, and they try to go in. And they look, and they know that the man is broken. He needs saving. So they climb up to the top, and they dig through the roof to get to Jesus. And they lower him down. And what, what gift does Jesus give the man? Son, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. Would he have done that, you think, if he had been walking around the day before? Everything is great. Life is good. Go up and dig down in a roof just to see Jesus. I'm sure he would have walked over and said, eh, the line looks pretty long. I'll go down the road. People who know they need salvation, people who look at their lives and say, I am a sinner. I am desperate for salvation. I need God's love. They dig a hole in the roof to get to the sacraments. They come pounding on the door to say, forgive me. And in our heart of hearts, we don't believe this. We believe good people go to heaven when they die. Which is why we don't take seriously that what happens in this room is the difference between life and death, between heaven and hell. When you receive the forgiveness of sins, when you take Christ's body and blood, Jesus is giving bad people life. But good people think they don't need it. Good people think that they're just fine. That no matter what they do, everything's going to turn out well. That if they, if they pray or if they are off on their own, everything's fine. How could God punish me? But that's the opposite of what the Bible says. We live 
not just in a culture, but in a church that is taken over by this moral therapeutic deism. And we need to realize it. Because our whole lives, our whole view of the world, colors our relationship with Christ through these things. When we hear his word, when we hear what uh, people teach and preach, it goes through this lens of this non-Christian philosophy. That is the wisdom of the world. It's not the Greeks thing, it's not the Jews thing. And it needs to be destroyed because it's only Christ that is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is only Christ that is salvation. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermons of Concordia Lutheran Church. For more information about getting involved, please visit concordiaberwin.org. Like us on Facebook at Concordia Lutheran Church and Little Lambs.